There are lots of great ways to connect with us at AveMariaRadio.net, like our Poll of the Week. This week we want to know, should schools, businesses, stadiums, and more be allowed to require a COVID vaccine to enter their premises? Let us know what you think now at AveMariaRadio.net. This is 990 WDEO, Ypsilanti, Detroit, or on the internet at WDEO.net. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking a closer Catholic look at current events, issues, and ideas. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta, thanking you for being with me. We've got two hours in front of us talking about the things that matter most. And let me tell you, you may have heard that um, yesterday German Catholics celebrated a day in which same-sex unions were blessed. And it has the support of the majority of German bishops. Now, they did this in direct defiance of the Holy See's uh, recent statement that we do not have within our uh, authority the power to bless same-sex unions. So we're going to find out what this means. There are some interesting legal questions that we're going to explore coming up uh, next hour. You realize the Concordat that was signed between the Holy See and the German government back in 1933 is still in force. And it means that if the German bishops go into formal schism, they will lose the tax revenues that they presently receive from the German government. Because the German government's um, uh, legal connection is with Rome, not with the German bishops. We'll talk about that coming up in the second hour. Also, we're going to... um, be taking time uh, during today's program to look at what's been going on in uh, Israel right now. As you may know, uh, over the last day, Israel and Hamas have been firing rockets uh, towards each other. It's an escalation that has been sparked by weeks of tensions in Jerusalem. Mindy Belts from World Magazine will be joining us. We're also going to take some time and uh, take a look at who can and can't require a COVID vaccine. Dr. Steve Doran will be joining us. But first, what do you say we get to today's headlines? Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ravi Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, May 11th, it's the Feast of St. Ignatius of Laconi. Today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. A family of seven is among the victims in Gaza after airstrikes from Israel. Michael Kastner reports. Palestinian militants are accused of launching more than 200 rockets amid weeks of violence in Jerusalem. 
The death toll is up to 24, including nine children with more than 30 in the hospital. People in Gaza's border communities have been told to stay home and near bomb shelters as the Israeli military prepares for a possible escalation. More on the escalation between Israel and Palestine is coming up this hour on Cresta in the Afternoon. Senate Democrats and Republicans are butting heads over the federal government's role in the U.S. elections and voting rights in America. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell criticizing Democrats for trying to federalize U.S. elections. The Democratic Party, on its own, wants to rewrite the ground rules of American politics for their benefit. We all know that's what this is about. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says former President Trump told, quote, a big lie that the 2020 election was stolen, and now his allies are, quote, poisoning faith in our democracy. The Louisiana State Legislature last week passed a resolution recognizing January 22, 2022 as a day of tears. January 22nd is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision that legalized abortion in the U.S. State Senator Beth Meisel saying, quote, as a pro-life state, we must continue to bring attention to the loss of innocent lives from abortions yearly. Let us work together to demonstrate that we value life and strive to protect the unborn. Louisiana is joining Arkansas, Mississippi, and Alabama with a new recognition. I'm C. Clark, Ali Maria, Radio News. again it's good to be with you i want well, to bring up it looks as though we're heading into a new cold war uh it looks as though china has determined that it's not uh its ambitions are not ser- simply to be the hegemonic power of the uh, pacific rim but in fact they seem to have global ambitions and they are now releasing very clear statements of ideolo- you know basically ideological warfare. I'll go over some of those with you uh, as we go on. But one of the other things that they're doing is they're using the race issue against us the same way that the Soviet Union used to use the race issue uh, against us. Now let me just start off though with a very simple statement. I'm confident that the attempt to discredit the United States as a racist country will ultimately fail. Not because there isn't racism or racial incidents here, but because fundamentally it's untrue. The United States is not a racist country. It's not in our DNA. It's not fundamental to our identity. Uh, We have a history uh, that we've been dealing with and we've been improving on and we continue to improve on it. The election of a black man as president of the United States ought to be clear enough indication that uh, though there may be racial incidents here and there, America is not a, quote, racist country. Um, And in fact, in order to keep alive the idea that America is a racist country, terrible incidents such as we saw in the case of George Floyd have to be um, given lots of publicity they have to be thrown out there, and their significance has to be exaggerated. And the reason I'm confident that in the long run this falls apart is because, realistically speaking, skin color has no more intrinsic meaning than blonde hair or blue eyes. You know, um, 
society invests physical characteristics with significance. But you can't go back to ancient Greece or Rome and expect somebody there to say, oh, yes, blondes have more fun. You know, that's, that's a social, uh, that's social significance that was given to blondes in Western society, right? It's a silly phrase, but you know what I'm talking about. It has no relationship to blondes. Blondes don't have more fun or less fun. Blondes are simply blonde. Uh, and it's the same thing with skin color. Uh, no, black people are not lazy, nor uh, are they strong, nor are they. They are people with black skin. And I think that that truth is going to prevail. Uh, this was what Martin Luther King Jr. made very clear. You know, in reality, skin color has no intrinsic meaning. And that's why people should be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Now, we've come a long way since King, unfortunately, because we've now seen a revised notion that skin color has some intrinsic significance so that you even have white people who now claim they want to be black because they can get some <laughs> some advantage out of it. It's crazy. And of course, it's especially crazy in a land that has so many uh, Christians in it, both Bible-believing Protestants and, uh, you know, uh, Catholics who are committed to the teach, apostolic teaching authority of the church, because one of the central social premises of Catholic thinking and biblical thinking is this. There's one race, the human race, and that, in fact, although differences arise among people and some of those differences get become race-based, the truth is that in Christ— there's no male or female, no bond or free, no Jew or Gentile, and by extension, no black or white, no rich or poor. In Christ, all those um, social inventions, all those social realities are erased, and they are seen as lies that divide us from one another. So I think, again, a nation which has strong... Uh, Christian background eventually emerges from this. And that's what actually we've seen. Though it's been a troubled history, uh, race issues have been given us a troubled history, uh, yet the progress is enormous that we have made over the decades and uh, actually now the centuries. But let me point something out, because recently we've seen a case that got very little attention. It's, this, it's the case of Tony Timpa, and uh, this was pointed out by Ryan Mills uh, in National Review. Um, I'll tell you this, let me give you this story this way from his uh, mother's point of view. From her home near Dallas, Vicki Timpa watched the nation erupt uh, when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. And she was aware, of course, that $27 million, uh, that was the settlement that the city of Minneapolis agreed to pay Floyd's family. And then we, she saw last month that uh, Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer, he was convicted, two counts uh, of murder, a count of manslaughter for his role in killing Floyd. She's happy with that outcome. And she's glad that Floyd's family received some closure. But what happened to Floyd was terrible. Yet in her mind, her son Tony suffered even worse, if you can imagine. Tony Timpa was 32 years old when he died in police custody in Dallas in August of 2016. Like Floyd, 
Tony Timple was pinned down face to the ground more than 14 minutes with an officer's knee in the center of his back, not near his neck, but in the center of his back. He was suffering from a mental health breakdown. And in fact, Tony had called 911 asking for help. That's a little different than with George Floyd. Um, but there was no national uproar after Timpa's death, no national cries for justice or reform. The city of Dallas paid no settlement to Timpa's family. A grand jury indicted three of the Dallas officers on misdemeanor deadly conduct charges, but the district attorney dismissed them. Now, the civil case is on appeal after the judge granted a summary judgment to the defense. Vicki says, it tears me up. Uh, we're all human here. We all deserve our civil rights. And Tony suffered horribly, and everybody knows it. So you have these two in-custody deaths of George Floyd and Tony Timpa. They are strikingly similar in many, many ways. Um, a policing expert, Michael Lyman, uses both of them in his presentation because he points out that these are abuses of use of force. Uh, and the elephant in the room, though, and the key difference that explains the differing public and political reactions to these cases is race. Floyd was black, and so his death became a national rallying cry for racial justice and police reform. And there is, in fact, a wide uh, industry of activists that are focused in on race and race reform and racial conflict in America. Um, <clears throat> there's not a similar um, industry like that uh, dealing with mental health issues. Timpa was white. He was mentally ill. His death became a rallying cry for no one. There was no narrative to advance in his case. There was no preordained narrative about the significance of race in America or even about the significance of mental illness in America. The focus on the Floyd case was race. and um, But both cases, from the standpoint of police work, dealt with bad police procedures. There are two things that these cases point out. You have bad policing. And secondly, in both cases, you had the belittling of a human person. In the Floyd case, we all know the story, uh, you know, the things um, that were said, the ig ignoring of Floyd's appeals, uh, the ignoring of the people standing around. In Timka's case, uh, what you had were some police officers who actually were, were uh, trying to uh, deal with his discomfort. But you had others who were mocking his complaints. Uh, and then when he, in fact, went unresponsive and unconscious, they said, wake up now, it's time for school, get up and get breakfast. And they teased him. They were teasing him. So you had two things happening here, poor policing and diminished humanity. And in both cases, you see that. And frankly, both cases, uh, race may have had very little to do with it. But in the case of George Floyd, there's a preordained narrative that we get behind. The reason I bring this up is because I think it's important. And I think it's important for Americans right now to realize that China is doing exactly what the Soviet Union used to do on this question of race. China has gone ahead. Xi Jinping has recently uh, published a book in which he makes it clear that uh, 
China is the new vehicle for global Marxism, and that as the, that global Marxism speaks the truth about reality. Uh, dialectical materialism is what reality is all about. Historical materialism. Marxism is true, a truth that is scientific, popular, practical, and open, and its brilliance as truth is constantly manifested in its continuous development through time and practice. And so Xi Jinping is explaining that the Communist uh, Party of China is, in fact, the wave of the future. And if you look back at how they report on racial disruptions in the United States, it's, it's amazingly similar to the way the Soviet Union uh, dealt with it. During the, the classic civil rights era of the 50s and 60s, J. Edgar Hoover was convinced that Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and other uh, civil rights organizations, he was convinced that they were being aided uh, by communists. Now, the, tr the truth of the matter is um, it's been difficult to find any kind of money flow into these organizations from communist organizations. But there's no doubt by looking at communist propaganda of the period that they were exploiting racial division and racial divide in America. And by so doing, they were actually helping to engineer increased racial division and racial divide in America. So Hoover was wrong in one important respect, but he did understand that racial conflict in America was going to be used by the enemies of the United States, and it was going to be exploited by the enemies of the United States. And that's what we see going on with China now. In fact, during the, the George Floyd, the, high, the heyday uh, of reaction to Floyd, newspapers in China were reporting happily on looting and rioting, editorials blasting the United States government for failing to address America's racial inequality. And we are, we've entered this new era where we're going to have a new Cold War. Here's the fundamental point. Christians, and Catholics in particular, who know there's one race, the human race, have an important role to play in fighting for this country. Talking about the things that matter most. You're listening to Cresta in the Afternoon. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Mindy Belt, senior editor of World Magazine and author of They Say We Were Infidels. Uh, you may have heard already that Israel has unleashed new airstrikes on Gaza earlier today, and they actually hit the high-rise home of a Hamas field commander. And they've also hit two border tunnels dug by militants. And we've seen, again, ongoing conflict there. Mindy, good to have you with me. Hi, Al. Good to be with you. What is the latest here? We know that we've got these new airstrikes uh, on Gaza earlier today. Uh, and this is part of an escalation that's been going on uh, for weeks. What can you tell us about the latest? Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of sound and fury that's been tamped down in Israel and Palestinian areas for, for years now. Um, the dispute that started all of this is a very long-standing one. Um, and what I'm hearing from, from people there uh, tonight, it's, it's now nearing midnight in Tel Aviv and in Jerusalem. Um, 
we just had a really incredible number of rockets that have been um, dislodged from Gaza and and mainland landing directly over Tel Aviv. Most of them have been intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome, its anti-missile system. Mm-hmm. But a number of them have actually landed in the city, and I'm hearing that there are injuries in Tel Aviv. So that's that's like the next thing, because what, what we're seeing, what, what Israel is normally good at doing is sort of surgically responding to these kinds of provocations and then tamping down the escalation. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing right now is something that I haven't seen in a long, long time, which is just a rapid escalation on both sides. Oh. Hmm. And and why now? Uh, what in particular happened uh, over the last few weeks to bring these longstanding tensions uh, to a head? Yeah, I mean, sometimes these things are a little bit hard to, you know, to finger and to pinpoint. But what really started all of this is sort of the latest round in what has been a long-running dispute over the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood that's in very near the old city of Jerusalem, right outside the Damascus Gate area. For people who are familiar with Jerusalem, it's 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 near what used to be called the American Colony, where there's the old American Colony Hotel now, and, and for years, there has been this legal dispute. There are a number of Palestinian families that have had lease holdings in, in residential areas that go back to the 1950s. Um, those, but those residences actually are owned by Jewish families, many of them, and they've been in and out of the court system. The courts have consistently ruled in favor of the property owners who are Jewish, but that has left the Palestinian residences, some of them who have been there for decades, disenfranchised and homeless. And and this has just been something that's been going back and forth, back and forth in the court system as long as I can remember. Um, the latest is that eight families, eight Palestinian, Palestinian families were due to be evicted because of a Supreme Court ruling that allowed for their eviction because they are not the rightful owners of the housing they've been living in. Um, That's kind of erupted, but it, it of course, is following on just a host of other things. Many Palestinians have felt shut out, for instance, from Israel's sort of number one in the world vaccination program. There are some simmering frustrations about that. There is, of course, the the run-up that we've seen to a very contentious election where neither Benjamin Netanyahu nor his opponent have been able to gain gain enough uh, seats in in the Knesset to have a governing coalition. It's a a very destabilized time in Israel right now. What what happens, because Netanyahu is something of a caretaker uh, governor now there, because he's been unable to, uh, as a result of these elections, been unable to put together uh, a coalition government. So is his opponent. How how do you how do you uh, command an army from that position? I mean, who, uh, does the army have sufficient uh, autonomy that they don't need to have a co- you know um, you know a, a coherent government or a cohesive government uh, to act from? Well, the interesting thing is that that. <laughs> Um, Netanyahu, you know, he's he's part of a trial on corruption charges right now. He's right. not, he's had the lowest 
support in an election that he's had. You know, he's been forced to go to the polls four times now in two years. He is a pop, is a, uh, a politician under assault, you might say, or, or under a, a, lot, a lot of stress, and yet he remains the most popular politician in Israel. And so because it is a government that's undisputed, it sort of falls to him to continue to serve in the capacity of, of prime minister, even though he is not the duly elected prime right. minister, he's not the, he does not form the coalition government. Um, and so, yeah, it's a great question. Like, he appears to be calling the shots. He has announced um, the movements of, of the military and how they will respond. He has said that they will continue, um, to that Hamas will pay a price for these rockets that are being um sent from Gaza and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, you do have to wonder, in the minds of Israelis, uh, the, the government's instability right now has to be playing a role in these tensions, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. Now, among um, the, the Palestinians, what is the current status of Hamas uh, as opposed to the Palestinian Authority? What kind of a... Th- does Hamas, as a, a political organization, what kind of status do they have in representing the Palestinian people? Well, as we were talking on the Israeli side, I would say that both of those groups uh, really are jockeying for power among the Palestinians. The Palestinian Authority is the governing authority um, that that has control of the West Bank areas that mm-hmm. are under its control. Uh, Hamas controls Gaza, though, and, and has for, for quite some time now. And um, as a result, it's it's a very strong player. You know, Gaza is um, a, a pretty... I've, I've only visited there once. It is one of the most beleaguered uh, places I've ever been to in mm-hmm. the world to see what the repeated conflict and barrages of attacks from Israel have brought to see how Hamas has not been able... Um, to to better conditions at all for Gaza. Gaza feels like a trophy to the failed cause of Palestinian extremism. I mean, it it you know it is like they it, it's it's like they're okay with that Hamas is okay to allow it to continue to be in the state to continue to be known mainly as a launching point for missiles. Um, and to continue to allow the people who live there to be in, in what, you know, feels like kind of a prison. Yeah. Uh, because it is, it's their calling card. They they can use that to beat up on Israel. And um, and, and so, it, you know, it's, it's really unfortunate that how most people associate Gaza as they associate as, as almost a missile launching pad. And it, it is, it, you know, a place full of not only... Um, Palestinian Arab Muslims, but also Palestinian Christians, and it has it has a vibrant past that we'd love to see recaptured someday. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's under the control of Hamas. Hamas, I believe, is increasingly calling the shots, and we're hearing more from them. We heard from a, um, uh, one of the leaders of Hamas, uh, you know, in a in a televised video that I first saw uh, just yesterday, I, I think it was something that was said over the weekend, you know, standing before a group of Palestinians with with um, 
black hooded soldiers behind him telling Palestinians to go out <clears throat> and buy every five-shekel knife they could find to cut off the heads of Jews. Wow. I mean, that's that's what they're propagating. So that that's the kind of rhetoric that is acceptable uh, <laughs> within this people group. Uh, this, this, whether they do well, it or I not... I would be cautious about yeah. saying that it's acceptable okay. within the people group. The people group doesn't have much say at this point. Okay. And, and, you know, so I would say it's acceptable within Hamas. And that Hamas is is holding uh, holding the people who live in Gaza in, in kind of an iron hostage. Breath. Yeah, yeah. Um, is there any? I mean, we've I don't know how many segments over the years I've done similar to what we're talking about now. I know, right? <laughs> is is there any? Do you see anything on the horizon that conceivably could be a step forward? towards civic peace, um, or at least the absence of war? Well, I would say this, and it's not that dissimilar to what we see in our own country, that we all get frustrated with our our politicians, our power brokers on, on any side of the political aisle. I think in Israel there is tremendous frustration with their uh, political leaders right now. And yet at the same time, Israel has built itself, it, it has had this incredible period of peace from which to build its economy, to create some more cohesive society in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that if you, if you actually spend time in Israel and you're moving among the different groups, you can travel to the West Bank, you can come back, you can um, visit all the very different areas of Israel, you can see this incredible development that has happened there. And so I think, you know, what people want is is for this kind of escalation of violence to stop. It's it's not something that's representative of either Israelis or most Palestinians, mm-hmm. I believe. And I believe that, that people have worked hard building up their businesses, building up their neighborhoods and their communities to avoid the, just this sort of thing. So it really is the pressure is really on the political leaders right now to live up to um, what the people have built in that country and and to to try to find a way to de-escalate right now. I'm not hearing anything that suggests that's what they want to do, but I think it's what's going to have to happen. Yeah, yeah. Mindy, how do people uh, stay in touch with the work you're doing at World Magazine? Uh, give them a reason to get in touch with you. <laughs> that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Um, they can read our latest news at WNG.org. That's for World News Group. We have a, a five-day-a-week podcast of news, and they can reach me via our website and, and sign up to read Globetrot, which is a weekly news update that I do. Very good. Thanks so much, Mindy. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Al. Bye-bye. Mindy Belt, World Magazine. And again, we'll have the uh, website linked at our site. I'm Al Cresto. Good afternoon. 
About uh, 46% of Americans 16 and up have received at least one shot of the COVID vaccine, and the Pfizer vaccine has now been approved for kids as young as 12. Well, President Biden has vowed that there will not be a federal vaccine passport, and yet businesses, universities, and other institutions are weighing their options uh, on requiring a vaccine. Who can and who can't make such a demand? My guest is Dr. Stephen Doran. He is a practicing neurosurgeon in Omaha, a member of the state of Nebraska COVID-19 task force. He was just ordained to the permanent diaconate on May 1st and is the bioethicist for the Archdiocese of Omaha. He and his wife, uh, Sharon, have uh, uh, co-founded the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Steve, good to have you back. Thanks. Thank you, Alex. Good to be back. So tell me uh, about this. Uh, I understand while nearly 50% of Americans have received at least one shot here, uh, the demand is falling. Is that true? That's true. A lot of states are, are refusing shipments, and, and some have even uh, sent some back, you know, which raises an opportunity for you know, sending uh, vaccination doses to some countries that are uh, in great need of them right now. But, yeah, it's, the demand has fallen quite a bit. And why do you think that is? You know, if you look at polls and, and businesses like Gallup and, and other news agencies have, have performed polls, and, and by and large the, the reasons given are, are a bit all over the map. I think one constituency that is resisting the vaccine are just inherently distrustful of the government to begin with. Yeah. That represents one group. Um, I think there's also people who uh, understandably are hesitant uh, because of how the vaccine would, um, how quickly it was rolled out. You know, and within that group, there's some who are doing more of a wait and see as opposed to, no, I'm not going to get it. Right. They're, they're going to see what happens with other people. Yep. I think within the Catholic community, there's um, a number of individuals who have uh, expressed concerns about the moral uh, status of these vaccines. Uh, I think nationally that's a relatively low number, but within the Catholic community, uh, uh a significant number. So, so yeah, those, those reasons are, are varied, and uh, you will see that um, um, uh, non-whites, um, uh, non-white, non-white individuals are less likely to get vaccinated. So mm-hmm. there's some ethnic differences too. Yeah, yeah. There's a g- greater suspicion uh, of government programs like this. Uh, interestingly enough, um, what are the public health consequences uh, that we should expect if, in fact, uh, the demand for the vaccine uh, continues to drop? Well, it's hard to know in some ways. Um, we, we certainly see the effectiveness of the vaccine both here in the United States and Britain and in Israel, where those countries that have had effective vaccination programs have seen their numbers uh, drop much greater than what you might expect expect just uh-huh. by the natural course of the disease, whether we will ever reach the so-called herd immunity or whether it's even possible or even necessary, it's hard to tell. You know, you can you know, look all over and get all sorts of different opinions about that. I think more and more people are coming to the conclusion this is something that we're going to learn to live with, that it's not going to go away, and um, that hopefully with time will become less aggressive, less easily transmitted. But if the number of vaccines continue to drop, there will be opportunities for the virus to continue to circulate. We hear a lot about the various virus variants um, and uh, how how important those are and how lethal they might be is, is still 
you know, it, 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 it depends on a lot yeah. of things. So bottom line is, you know, and unless everybody takes a vaccine, there's a risk that the virus will continue to circulate, which yeah. it probably will. Uh, I heard something about an a Indian strain of the vaccine that's especially lethal. Do you know anything about that? Not more than what's just kind of popped up in the news lately. Okay. You know, certainly in, in India has been really decimated, you know, recently, and our, our hearts and prayers go out to that country. Yep. Lots of reasons behind it, you know, dense population, ineffective vaccination rollout. Um, you know, the numbers are probably way underestimated, you know, as what we see. So really, it's, it's really our hearts go out to that nation right now. Now, uh, colleges uh, requiring vaccinations to return in the fall, um, I mean, is, is, is this, how does it, does this help when you have mandatory vaccination like that? Well, um, at first glance, you would think it would. And as we're all aware, there are mandatory vaccines for other uh, diseases to go to college, for example, the meningitis vaccine and a whole host of vaccines. So presumably when you have people living in close, close quarters, uh, in dorms and then tending to socialize closely, you would hope that you would see a decreased likelihood of, of transmission with required vaccination. Now, um, it's not universal, though. Uh, there's certainly that number of colleges that are requiring vaccines grows on a daily basis, but not in all states. You know, mm-hmm. for example, here in Nebraska, Texas, Florida, the state schools have yet to make that requirement, and I guess time will tell whether that actually happens or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, what about what are you hearing in the uh, the business world? Are employers increasingly coming to uh, require? Uh, you know, are they mandating vaccines? I don't. I haven't heard. Maybe there's some small pockets that are requiring it. Even here in the hospitals, it wasn't required. And you would think if there was ever an industry that would require it, be the healthcare industry. But you know, the government did say last December. You know, the the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission said that. An employer can mandate the vaccine, and um, it could be potentially terms of employment for the person. Now, that doesn't mean the employer can automatically terminate the worker, but uh, an employer does have the right to require a vaccine, as determined by the government last December. Again, I think we'll have to see how this plays out. Yeah. I, I, I want to assume the, the good intent for most people that they don't want to be heavy-handed with their employees. I don't right. think anybody wins in that situation. Right, right. And so I haven't heard, I haven't heard of widespread you know, uh, requirements anywhere. Are there any plans on the part of the federal government that you've heard of to mandate vaccines? Um, from, a, from a statutory perspective, uh, they can't, and, and the Biden administration has made it clear they say they don't intend to. Um, I think that... Um, that would be, there's not precedence for that with the other vaccines before this uh, okay. federal mandate for vaccinations. Okay. So that would appear incredibly heavy-handed if, this, if it came about. Yeah, it really would. And I think, I think the, you know, that really would go fly against, you know, uh, individual and even state rights to, mm-hmm. to determine what's best for their, for their population. So I, I think we'll, I, I would, I would be shocked if there was some sort of federal mandate right. here in the United States. Now, that's, you know, obviously could be different in different countries that have different privacy uh, concerns and value privacy, privacy different than we do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do we see uh, much, uh, or the, like vaccine passports uh, for travel between nations, how, how widespread is that? Well, there certainly are, is an interest in it. Um, there's a lot of hurdles to overcome 
first of all, to develop a vaccine passport. So it, it raises up to uh, several issues. One, travel between countries, and certainly there are countries who are requiring um, people to show proof of vaccination. Uh, then there's travel within the country or going to venues within the United States, for example, showing proof of it. As we know, the, at least here in the United States, currently your proof of vaccination that you can carry with you is a, is a, you know, a cardboard paper with your name and the lot number of the vaccine you received, which could be easily uh, forged or, or uh, someone, if they really wanted to, can make it look like they have the vaccine. So in order to develop some sort of more robust um, way of demonstrating vaccination would require something electronic. There's a lot of interest in developing apps to do this. Again, it raises all sorts of privacy issues. Um, Nebraska, I'm sorry, uh, New York does have an app out there um, called the Excelsior app, which it can link to your vaccination records and your COVID testing records so that you have on an app the proof of either vaccination or testing. The deal is, is that each state houses their data differently. You know, for example, I can go in Nebraska here and I can go on the proof of immunization website for all immunizations and I can pull up my own records. But that's how Nebraska does it. So the ability for an app to pull that data, even with your, even with your permission, from a multitude of states, that's going to be super difficult just because everybody has a different uh, way of storing data. So we're a long, long ways from that, but there certainly is a lot of interest in that because there are industries that are, are requesting it and desiring it. You know, things like uh, sporting uh, venues or cruise ships and things like that, they, they want to be able to have that type of uh, ability to have someone prove that they're vaccinated above and beyond a, a cardboard piece of paper. Mm-hmm. What about, is there anything done in the way of easy, instantaneous testing that can be done? You know, in other words, uh, you know, I've had, I think, three tests um, before I was vaccinated, and uh, some of them were pretty fast. Uh, is there anything that can be done so that person, you don't require, you know, you don't require proof of vaccine, but you can uh, prove that you are not uh, carrying uh, COVID? Well, you're right. That's, that's already being done in some locations. Like, uh, in order to get into certain events, you, know, you have to test negative. Or, yeah. And so the, the technology to do that is there. But if you think about it, if, if this is being done, say, for example, a large gathering, you know, you can imagine the bottleneck, even a fast <laughs> vaccine is just, you know, people are going to, they barely tolerate, you know, waiting in line just to, you know, hand over the tickets. So, so yeah, it's technologically there. I don't know how patient people would be with that, you mm-hmm. know, at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about the moral suitability of the vaccine. Uh, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has, has spoken on this, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Uh, as I understand, the National Catholic Bioethics Center has, then uh, th- that is that uh, the uh, the co- uh, the uh, excuse me uh, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines uh, have are morally suitable. Uh, explain to us why this remains uh, a concern, though, amongst uh, so many Catholics. Well, there is the association with. Uh, all the vaccine lines, um, including Moderna and Pfizer, but also Johnson Johnson, have some connection with cell lines that were created from aborted uh, fetuses years ago. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine uses those cell lines for the production of the vaccine, while the Moderna and Pfizer use them for testing. So in the continuum of, you know, how close they are to that particular evil, 
the Johnson & Johnson is more closely associated with that particular evil of abortion than the other two, but they, all three do have some degree of connection. The, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith and the bishops have all said it's morally permissible to receive any of the vaccines that are out there. Now, back when these first came out, there really wasn't a choice of which vaccine you could receive, and so, but now, especially since the, the demand has dropped, in theory, an individual could now go and choose the vaccine that they find uh, the least morally compromised. So that, that option to choose now exists, at least in theory. It didn't before. Um, so you might find some individuals who are now um, more willing to consider a vaccine when, when they're at least given a choice to choose one that is less morally uh, compromised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, as you've monitored the conversation since this began, do you see more and more Catholics uh, making peace with the uh, the except the Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson Johnson vaccines. You know, I, I, this is anecdotal. Al, I would say that by and large, the the individuals who who expressed a, a concern, the moral concern, have continued to maintain that concern. Okay. Um, maybe there's some a few people who've decided to uh, to switch their mind, but I, and I think that reflects just the the number of um, you know demand has not. Uh, gone up. It's, it's fallen, if anything. So I'm yeah. seeing a lot of people changing their mind. I don't think, anyway. Yeah. Steve, thanks so much. Always good talking with you, and I re- really appreciate your help. Dr. Steve oh, Doran. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. I'd like to encourage you to follow up on our conversations by going to AveMariaRadio.net. We have in the Cresta Guest Archives follow-up information, contact information for all of our guests, the institutions they represent, the articles that we may have used in preparation for the interviews. All that stuff is there. So get to AveMariaRadio.net, and uh, you'll see the range of our hosts are posted there on the front page. Uh, you can hit the Crest in the Afternoon tab, and that'll take you to all the places you need to go. Now, coming up next hour, Father Charles Fox will be joining us. He's an assistant professor of theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. We're going to explore this question of what does it mean to be pastoral? Uh, it's, at least in theologically conservative circles, when you hear that uh, Father so-and-so or Bishop so-and-so is a, quote, pastoral bishop, or they are concerned about uh, acting pastorally. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, that raises a red flag, meaning that uh, Father so-and-so or Bishop so-and-so is somehow weak in the application of doctrine. Is that fair? We're going to talk it over with Father Fox, and we're also going to look at uh, the what's going on in Germany. It's Amazing. This hour of Cresta in the Afternoon is co-produced by Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. The first and oldest Catholic radio station in the country, 990 WDEO Ypsilanti, Detroit, and Ave Maria Radio Station. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 
Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. We're going to be taking a look at two uh, two kind of imp- very important but uh, much disputed areas of Catholic pastoral work. First of all, the very question, what does it mean to be pastoral? And why is that word regarded with such suspicion in certain circles? What? How does the Church understand the task of the pastor, the task of the shepherd? Uh, we're going to be looking at that with Father Charles Fox. Also, Father Goran uh, uh, Jovicic will be joining me from uh, St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California, to look at what happened in Germany yesterday. Remember, uh, May 10th was going to be the day that German bishops, at least the majority of them, had uh, said they're going to be blessing, or allowing priests anyways, to bless same-sex unions of some sort. Uh, We're going to learn a little bit more what happened, but I'm more interested in what will happen. How will the Holy See respond to German bishops who no longer echo what the Church teaches on the status of same-sex relationships? So that's coming up a little later in this hour. But right now, let's get to today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Tuesday, May 11th, it's the Feast of St. Ignatius of Laconi. Today's news is brought to you by Ave Maria University. Your vocation location is at avemaria.edu. The White House remains keenly focused on the Colonial Pipeline cyber attack and shutdown. We've been working around the clock since Friday uh, to help Colonial return the pipeline to normal operation as quickly and as safely and as securely as possible. That's Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm telling reporters the pipeline is being slowly brought back online. Granholm saying the government is doing everything possible to ease fuel shortages in the eastern U.S. Several gas stations on the East Coast are running dry. GasBuddy reporting that stations in North Carolina and Florida are the shortest on supplies. The Suez Canal Authority is expanding the waterway after the ever-given cargo ship was stuck for nearly a week in March. According to Reuters, an 18-mile section will be widened by 130 feet. The president of Egypt instructed the project to be completed within two years. Some members of former President Trump's cabinet will be testifying in a hearing about the Capitol riot. Tomorrow's hearing in the House will focus on the events of January 6. That's when pro-Trump rioters stormed the Capitol in D.C. just as Congress convened to count the Electoral College votes of the 2020 presidential election. The witnesses include Christopher Miller, Trump's acting defense secretary, and Jeffrey Rosen, Trump's acting attorney general. The governor of North Dakota has vetoed parts of a pro-life funding bill last week that penalized state universities for conducting business with abortion providers. The portion vetoed had to do with higher penalties, but it still blocked universities from working with abortion providers. Christopher Dotson, executive director of the North Dakota Catholic Conference, told CNA, quote, it's a win and a pro-life victory. I'm Steve Clark, Ave Maria, Radio News. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. 
What does it mean to be pastoral? This is a question that comes up time and again, and uh, I've noticed it in my time as a Catholic that oftentimes, at least in conservative theological circles, when somebody brings refers to a priest or bishop as, quote, pastoral, it seems to be the contrary of they're doctrinal. So you've got this, this false dichotomy between commitment to the doctrines of the faith uh, and as opposed to being pastoral in your application of those doctrines. What does it mean to be pastoral? Well, join me right now to help us uh, comb through this. Father Charles Fox, he's Associate Professor of Theology at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He holds his uh, uh, doctorate in sacred theology, uh, dogmatic theology, from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome. He's also chaplain and board member of the St. Paul Evangelization Institute, headquartered in Warren, Michigan. Father, good to have you back here. Thanks. Great to be with you, Al. Let's let's go to this question of of what it means to be pastoral. Um, First of all, what was the occasion for your writing this article for Catholic World Report. Was there something that you had come across that uh, provoked your writing this piece? Very much came out of my reflection on my own ministry, um, serving as a formator of seminarians. In fact, the first um, iteration of this article was an address I gave at our annual faculty retreat at Sacred Heart at the beginning of the academic year. Mm -hmm. And it seemed to me that this question is of paramount importance, um, precisely in order to bridge the kind of gap that you're talking about, yeah. you know, between the doctrinal emphasis and the emphasis, however you want to put it, on, you know, relating to the people or on love, as love is often misunderstood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was important to me, as a formator of pastors, to think a little bit about what we actually mean when we use that term. Yeah. Well, uh, next segment, I'm going to be talking with uh, Father Goran uh, uh, Jovacic, uh, who's been monitoring what's been going on in Germany. And I would venture to say that uh, German bishops, uh, as they are now talking about blessing same-sex unions, would say that they are being pastoral. in, in doing so, they're actually acting in uh, contradiction to the teachings of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. So uh, let's, let's use that as an, exa- as an example right in front of us. Here you have a, what appears to be an entire Episcopal conference claiming to be doing something pastoral, which is in direct opposition to what the Church teaches on this question of wide range of issues related to same-sex unions. How did they come to believe they were, quote, pastoral? Yeah, uh, the German bishops are putting the sin in synodal path. Um, (laughs) And it's, I mean, in some ways, it's bad theology gone berserk. Um, Mm -hmm. But it really has its roots in a lot of German theology. Now, (laughs) I quickly, I hasten to add that Germany has given us some of the very greatest theologians in our entire history, but no doubt they have also given us a 
type of theology which claims that knowledge comes principally from human experience and judgment rather than from theological meditation upon what God has revealed to us, and then the concepts and the creedal formulas that come from that reflection. And it's, you know, it really does get to the point of my article, especially about the importance of words, because they call this the synodal path. But in fact, the word synodal uh, is closely connected to the Catholic concept of communion, and by taking the path they propose to take, and in fact it looks like our taking now, they are threatening Catholic communion. Rather than acting with Peter, they are acting against him, and that can't help but have disastrous consequences. Yes, yes. No, I, I, I agree. Um, so let's let's talk about that then. You you tied their misunderstanding to a misunderstanding about how one does theology. Um, and again, speaking broadly here, uh, do, do we establish doctrine by reflection upon a word uh, from God, or do we establish our doctrine from a reflection upon human experience? I know those are two. Uh, very broad categories. But is that the real problem? Is that, in a certain sense, uh, the German bishops don't think they have a reliable word from God? I believe it's the root problem. Um, It may not be the immediate problem, but I believe it stands behind what's happening today. Basically, their position would be that you have to look to people's lives as they are in order to find truth. Now, certainly, you are going to find some truth there. Sure. But human experience is always subordinate to, at the service of, divine revelation. And the Church's reflection on what revelation means. And as you know, there can be development of doctrine, but there cannot be a radical break from the doctrine of the past. Right, And I'm afraid that, you know, some of this kind of experiential theology would take things so far as to say that if today's human experience directs us to do so, we ought to make a break from traditional theology. Right, right. Yeah, it looks, it looks like that is the way that uh, they are thinking. Um, is there—so is this something— which, I mean, in, in Protestant circles, where I trained many, many years ago, this was called uh, liberal theology, by which uh, you begin the discussion of uh, norms, theological norms and standards from uh, your experience. The scriptures themselves are looked upon as uh, simply a record of the religious experiences, uh, you know, of the of the uh, Hebrews, and then uh, eventually the uh, the first generation uh, following Jesus, uh, and so you have to look to their human experience uh, in order to come up with uh, norm, uh, proper norms and standards. But they, you would never see, uh, you would never see a word from God, which. Uh, comes in contradiction to one's norms and standards. Uh, 
So love, what does love mean? Well, we look to human beings for what, how they determine what love is. Uh, and same-sex couples can, quote, love one another. Therefore, they can't possibly be engaged in behavior which violates the will of God. Right. Uh, and, you know, of course, <laughs> it relies, upon, it's sort of like building a house of cards on a sandcastle, yes. you know, because this argument relies on a misunderstanding of what love is. Right. Love is not just self-reported good feeling. Uh, love is, first and foremost, a theological virtue, a gift given by God, first in baptism, and then, you know, reinforced, amplified, especially in the sacrament of the Eucharist, which is known as the sacrament of charity. Mm -hmm. And we look to the cross for the ultimate example and model of uh, what love really is. Right. And so it's not about emotions principally, but about self-giving. And um, for lots of reasons, the kind of so-called love, you know, they're referring to is not, in fact, true Christian love, even though there can be some elements of Christian love in those relationships. Sure, that is but true. But it does not pertain to the same-sex nature of the relationships. Um, it has to, it could have to do with friendship, or, you know, there can be, there are lots of different kinds of love, Yes, many of which are good. Yes. But... Yeah, it's not the relationship itself, That's right. which by definition is outside of God's plan. Yeah, And God's plan is for our good. I mean, that's one of the things sometimes I think, you know, not you, but we can forget collectively is that this is good news for everybody, including people in so-called same-sex relationships. That's right. That's right. Well, this gets complicated, and you address this further complication in another article that you did with Catholic World Report. And that is, what does it mean to love in an age of tolerance? Uh, what does it mean to love? Tolerance now is held out as, in some ways, the supreme social virtue, right? I mean, you know, we, we've got to be—we um, have to with, withhold all judgment uh, towards others. Uh, that tolerance requires us to basically uh, accept uh, the position, the behavior— of people who claim that they are acting in their own best interest or in the best interest of others. We have to be tolerant of their behavior, tolerant of their teaching, tolerant of their attitude. Where do, what is love in an age of tolerance? Love is precisely what people need today, because in a world of self-seeking, a world that not only of self-seeking, but a world that encourages self-seeking, self-satisfaction in every conceivable way, to see self-sacrifice modeled in the lives of Catholics and our brothers and sisters, you know, in Christ, is to see not only a beautiful example, but really what the world needs today. You know, the world needs solidarity. The world needs ultimately communion. The world needs relationships based on self-giving rather than on domination and self-seeking. And if we will commit ourselves to living in that way, rather than giving in to the very strong temptation of the world to indulge in perpetual self-satisfaction, 
but if we'll live this self-sacrificial love, we'll really be helping people to recognize the truth of the Second Vatican Council, that Jesus Christ is the answer to which every human life is the question. Mm -hmm. People have profound questions about what it means to be human, about identity, about meaning, about destiny, mission, and those questions are answered by looking to Christ, but it's precisely Christ on his cross. And that's what we need to live out for people. Yes, they have to be able to see that. Um, There's an irony here, and that is that the elevation of tolerance as the supreme social virtue actually very much works against love, it seems to me, because it simply means that I have to withhold my judgment of you. (laughs) Rather than commit myself to you, I simply allow you to do as you think you want to do. I don't have any necessary obligation to exhort, encourage, confront, admonish, Um, I simply tolerate. Well, I think medical analogies are very helpful here because bodily health is so important to people these days, and it is to me. And your doctor ought not merely to tolerate your bad habits. (laughs) Very Uh, good. He needs to help you to live better. (laughs) Very good. Father, thanks. We'll talk again. Thanks so much. God bless you. All right. Father Charles Fox, uh, we'll have the articles posted, of course, in the... uh, Press the guest archives. Coming up, we do take a look at what happened in Germany. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. It's reported that uh, organizers held a day of protest yesterday in Germany in response to the Vatican's recent declaration that the Church cannot bless same-sex unions. Join me right now to talk about yesterday's events, but also the, the broader uh, legal concerns that may arise. We have Father uh, Goran Jovacic. He's professor of theology and canon law at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. Father, great to make your acquaintance. Thank you. Hello, hello. Good to good to be with you. Thank you. How how widespread were these uh, protests or these blessing ceremonies yesterday? Do you have any sense of how big an event this was? I heard that there they were approximately hundreds parishes, but okay. uh, 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 who were been engaging in that uh, in in the blessings. Mm-hmm. Yes, but uh, with the time, uh, I think we will see that more and more. Okay. And is in terms of uh, news in Germany, is this a big story for the German press? Yes, yes, correct. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, that is true. And uh, uh, the aim is uh, also to uh, foster the acceptance of homosexuality in the Church, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and uh, also intercommunion and some other uh, uh, even doctrinal issues, uh, like coordination of women uh, to priesthood, etc. So uh, they are planning to issue a final document uh, of the Synodal Pact, uh, uh, actually in uh, fall. And then we will see really uh, there will be a one step closer to 
also really a loss of communion uh, with the Catholic Church mm-hmm. in uh, so central uh, uh, doctrines, doctrines of the faith. Right. Yeah. So what happens if the Holy See uh, declares that the Catholic bishops of Germany are in schism? What what is what is the what is the church's legal status in Germany at that point? Yes, uh, so uh, it's a very good question, and I hope and I pray that uh, we will avoid a schism yes. uh, in Germany. Um, uh, however, uh, I think we are already uh, uh, on very dangerous uh, path, and so when they will actually issue uh, issue those. Uh, uh, new norms uh, which will foster all that uh, topics which uh, we, we mentioned uh, uh, they will be one step closer to the um, uh, to the schism and uh, uh, so the Holy See in that case will uh, probably uh, invite them to recant and if they if those singular bishops will not recant uh, they can be excommunicated. They will be excommunicated de, uh, de facto by the law itself. Okay. Uh, uh, whether because of heresy or uh, losing the communion with the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and in that case, they will be not able to exercise uh, to their office as bishops. Um, and also all the privileges which are connected to that. Um, so, uh, but the church competent authority, that is the Holy See, uh, will have also to uh, write uh, a letter of uh, excommunication and removal, removal of office okay. of those bishops. Uh, but... Uh, since the Catholic Church in Germany has a, a public corporation status there, uh, according to the, uh, to the Weimar Constitution, German Constitution, mm-hmm. um, they, are, uh, they, they can, of course, like uh, taxes, for example, uh, they, uh, they will be not able actually to retain everything, uh, all those benefits, uh, uh, in that case. Uh, so they will be uh, uh, actually uh, losing those benefits. Okay. And I don't think so that Germany would uh, disrespect the concordate uh, with the Holy See. Okay. So the German bishops are not uh, a partner, but the Holy See of the Concordate, um, which establishes the juridical uh, uh, personality of the Catholic Church and of the dioceses and parishes and other institutions. Uh, So uh, probably the German government uh, will have to find another way how to uh, uh, resolve this situation. Uh, for example, uh, maybe they will allow uh, to the schismatic uh, uh, bishops to uh, to register 
as maybe German Catholic Church mm-hmm. and and uh, or to register as a public corporation and then get uh, uh, those uh, church taxes from the members which uh, which uh, which uh, will support them. So the so the um, the concordat that exists between Germany and the Holy See exists independent of any particular bishops that are uh, operating in Germany at any given time. This is an arrangement. Correct. Be- okay. Okay. So, so if yeah. um, the Holy See then. Uh, determines that these bishops are in schism. Uh, they, those bishops, those dioceses will lose their legal right to receive uh, taxes, you know, revenue from taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they would also have the, they would also then be able to reincorporate as a different church, like you say, the German Catholic Church rather than the Roman Catholic Church? Yes. That, now, uh, we, the history on this is not very hopeful, right? I mean, uh, during, yeah. during the 1930s, uh, there was a real effort I, I made, certainly with the German, with German Protestant uh, churches, to, uh, you know, basically come into conformity to the ideals of the, uh, the Nazi movement. Mm-hmm. So that uh, you could, could you imagine a situation in which German uh, Catholic bishops today would start their own church independent of Rome, that they would actually push for this? It's very difficult to tell. Uh, I think they are trying to, uh, some of those bishops, uh, because they are really uh, good Orthodox bishops in Germany as well. Okay. Uh, so some of those uh, which are uh, very much uh, inclined uh, to to support uh, these ideas they would actually um, it's very difficult to tell if uh, whether they will would go that uh, that way yeah. but uh, they will probably uh, um, uh, try to uh, get as much as possible uh, for their uh, way so the concord the concordat still has power today um, and it, that would be that is the formal document that is still in force. It really, I guess it, it it's going to depend upon the leadership of the German bishops and how far they want to push this. Yes, and it, it's difficult to see how the the Holy See would be able to tolerate, uh, you know, a a, a position uh, supporting same-sex acts, same-sex marriage, same-sex behavior, and continue to call that group of bishops orthodox in any sense of the meaningful sense of the word. Um, it would seem to me Rome would have to act. Yes, for sure. Because, um, so we have already the CDF uh, reacting uh, pretty, pretty clearly, uh, but despite that, uh, there are some bishops who are not uh, actually uh, uh, taking that uh, enough seriously. And uh, uh, 
So uh, the the Holy See is now engaging in dialogue, um, but also the dialogue uh, cannot be forever. Right, right. So the Holy See really uh, must act uh, because there is so much damage for not only for the uh, church in Germany, but also in the whole world mm-hmm. because uh, of, the, of the spread of these uh, uh, unorthodox ideas that would be end of the unity of the church. Right. If uh, one diocese or one particular church uh, um, okay, uh, allows, uh, for example, those gay blessings and uh, ordains women, or th- th- it's, it is uh, over with the unity of the church. Yeah. We share one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Right. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit, if you can, about the this giving, granting, or opening communion to non-Catholic uh, Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how far down the road are we uh, in Germany? Uh, it, it, you know, is it common already for non-Catholic Christians to take communion? Oh. I'm afraid that that is going on uh, for a pretty long time. Okay. Uh, not everywhere, but uh, it's pretty spread, widespread. Um, so all uh, all of these um, uh, I- new ideas uh, actually uh, are uh, uh, are not a new one, unfortunately. So. Um, uh, but now it uh, it uh, received another uh, uh, quality, or uh, for example, they will put that everything on paper in their policies. Right. So that is really. Uh, so they are not anymore really uh, uh, ready to to do that in informal way, but uh, they want to act. Uh, new norms with regard to that. Right, right. I mean, that takes on a whole new, a whole new dimension once they dimension. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah, it's no longer just de facto. It becomes de jure. Um, you, you've got it in law now. Uh, if they decide to put it in law, I don't see how the, uh, the Holy See cannot respond in a correct. very formal way themselves. Father, uh, hold it for a moment, please. We have to take a break. We'll come right back. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Father Goran Jovacic. He is professor of theology and canon law at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California. We're looking at the uh, conflict going on between the German bishops and the Holy See. How, for a lot of American Catholics, we kind of scratch our head. We have our problems here, of course, but um, we don't. We don't. We don't receive any tax dollars. Um, uh, you know, direct tax dollars. And so uh, it's hard for us to understand w- the kind of impact this would have here in the United States. Um, what would happen if American bishops began acting similarly to the German bishops? So I can recognize a big difference between the United States uh, and Germany, uh, for example, uh, with regard to the bishops' conference, uh, I don't think so 
that these ideas uh, would uh, spread uh, in the United States uh, so uh, easily. Uh, I think that uh, we have really, uh, most of the bishops are very much in line of the, uh, mm-hmm. with the Catholic teaching. Right. Uh, yes. Uh, so I don't see uh, the same uh, threat uh, like in Germany because I'm afraid that in Germany, the majority of bishops is on that, uh, on 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 other side, mm. who is pushing for this uh, for these ideas. Wow. So uh, how, uh, that you, is a, the big difference. Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of the history on that? How how did it come about that so such a large percentage of the German episcopacy came to hold? Uh, kind of theologically liberal positions on same-sex blessing and uh, also intercommunion. Yes. What's the history there? Yes. Uh, so we had a very uh, hostile government uh, with Chancellor Bismarck uh, in uh, 1870s. Uh, he was very much... Uh, he, uh, uh, he really... Uh, uh, hated the church uh, uh-huh. and uh, he wanted to uh, uh, nationalize the catholic church in germany but the the bishops at that time they were uh, very clear uh, and they were very uh, uh, loyal uh, to bishop of rome and we know that uh, the uh, there was a, a push back from them uh, when he was trying to uh, to separate them from Rome, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now we have a different uh, uh, story because of uh, modernism and zeitgeist and secularism, and uh, they so much entered our uh, our mentality, our church, our universities. Uh, so it is a really... Uh, a complete different uh, situation now. Uh, so, and I see really uh, a big problem that we are not able to resolve uh, this issue so easily. I'm so afraid, really, from the from uh, schism, and uh, I would really, uh, I, I pray. Uh, so much uh, that uh, that does not happen, but I, I, unfortunately we we get so far. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm afraid. Is is it uh, is is the do the German bishops have a different uh, understanding of how theology is done? I mean, do they have a different understanding of how doctrine develops? Um, because the church has been pretty clear on the this question of same-sex relations, uh, you know, there's not been a lot of wiggle room. <laughs> the church's teaching has been quite clear here. <clears throat> how did they how did they move away from orthodoxy towards this position they have now? Uh, unfortunately, uh, probably the educational system uh, uh, and uh, is uh, is the root cause. Because uh, many uh, German uh, professors uh, of uh, theology or, or canon law, or, uh, they actually even reject the magisterium of the church. I see. 
So they they say, okay, uh, we have a freedom of research. So theology became one science uh, without any binding authority. Gotcha. So so there's no so divine revelation is not, I guess, divine revelation is not seen uh, in the same light that the church has seen it. Uh, in the past. I mean, in, if you don't believe that God has spoken, you know, if you don't believe you've got a firm uh, revelation from God that mm-hmm. you can uh, comprehend, and which is understandable, if you think that it's always about human reflection uh, mm-hmm. upon the human condition or, you know, uh, our, our mores, um, if you don't believe there's a word from God that is distinct uh, from human opinion, you have a hard time standing against changes uh, in popular uh, popular opinion. Yes, and uh, those three sources of the Catholic dogma, as you said, uh, Holy Scripture, then Magisterium, and yeah. Sacred Tradition, uh, they make sense only together. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, some of uh, some of these professors and even priests they reject uh, uh, the teaching authority of the church, which is entrusted to the pope and to the college of bishops mm-hmm. uh, to uh, to teach uh, the faith authentically. Uh, so I don't know uh, how how that uh, uh, how we we came so far. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, how how likely is it that they will push uh, to the end on this? I mean, a lot of times uh, in the past, groups of bishops or groups of theologians will, uh, you know, push as far as they can. They get all the way to the edge of the pier, so to speak, mm-hmm. but they don't Correct. jump in. Yeah. You know. <laughs> they begin. To, yeah. They walk it back. Eventually, they walk it back. They want to see how far they can go before they are pulled back. Um, are you hopeful that that's what <laughs> that that's what we're going to see here? I, I yes, that, that that would be a better scenario for <laughs> sure, and uh, that is my hope and prayer that they will uh, recant and uh, so yeah, if we push yes, well. Thank you so much uh, for being with me, Father. It's wonderful talking with you, uh, even though the topic is difficult. Uh, you've given us a lot to think about, and I thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Father uh, Goran Jovicic, he is uh, a professor of theology and canon law at St. Patrick's Seminary in Menlo Park, California, and he pointed out uh, in an article we came across last week that, interestingly enough, the Concordat that was signed in 1933 between the German government, uh, that was the year after Hitler's rise, by the way, uh, the, the, the Concordat that was signed between the Holy See and the German government is still operative today. You know, um, those were, that was signed with the national authority of Germany. They signed it with the Holy See. It wasn't the German bishops that signed it. 
It was, it was the Holy See that signed it. And so consequently, if the Holy See determines that the bishops of Germany, for the most part, the majority, are now uh, apostate or in uh, schism, then the German government is duty-bound to withdraw, withhold revenue. You know, they usually, you know, as you know, there's a church tax in Germany, so people are taxed, and that money then goes to the church. But if the Holy See determines that the German bishops are in schism, then the German government can't do that any longer because the German bishops will lose their standing as authorized recipients of those tax dollars. So perhaps Orthodox bishops would remain in communion with the church, and uh, they would still probably qualify. But uh, it's, it gets complicated. But it's something in the United States we don't think about, right? We, we don't worry that somehow uh, if you know, a particular group of bishops in the United States seems to get theologically crazy, uh, we're not worried about losing vast amounts of revenue you know, we've, we've lost contracts with the federal government because the Catholic Church in the United States, in, in various dioceses, would not agree to uh, uh, release children to same-sex couples. So in some places in the United States, we lost our ability to do the ministry of adoption. We've had other contracts. The uh, U.S. government had a contract with the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops for a variety of social service projects that we had, and we related to human trafficking. And because we would not um, refer for uh, abortion, and we were not uh, big on contraception, right, then the U.S. government said they didn't want to work with us. Well, this goes back a few years now. But, but that's about as bad as it gets. We don't all of a sudden lose uh, this extraordinary amount of revenue because we don't depend on tax dollars for that revenue. The Germans do. So it would be interesting to see how this plays out um, you know, as it goes forward. Oftentimes we have seen, throughout the history of the Church, oftentimes we've seen groups of bishops or groups of theologians or individuals begin to propound a, a view of the faith which turns out to be heretical. And sometimes they end up getting excommunicated, sometimes they don't. Oftentimes what happens is they repent. They rewrite their teaching. Uh, sometimes they just stay silent and they don't take the next step and teach the heresy. In other words, theologians can often speculate about theological matters. It's when they actually begin to teach they get into trouble. Hans Kuhn, for instance, uh, was never excommunicated for his teaching. He was he just had his license to teach Catholic theology revoked. He continued to be a theologian, but he no longer had any authority to teach as a Catholic theologian. He remained a priest, um, and as far as I know, he remained, you know, uh, you know, formally formally in communion with the Church. So. Um, you know, that's, there's, a, there's places to go here. It's not settled 
how this is going to play out. Um, but it's one thing I'm sure of. It will be interesting. And we will learn a lot about how the Holy See governs when a conference of bishops seem committed to a path which is in direct opposition to the path that the Catholic Church is actually going down. We'll see what happens. There are lots of great ways to connect with us at AveMariaRadio.net, like our Poll of the Week. This week we want to know, should schools, businesses, stadiums, and more be allowed to require a COVID vaccine to enter their premises? Let us know what you think now at AveMariaRadio.net. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanks for being with me today. And do follow up on our conversations. We've got uh, follow-up information in the Cresta Guest Archives. Just go to AveMariaRadio.net. Follow up on the conversation with uh, Mindy Belts or with Deacon Steve uh, Duran or with Father uh, Charles Fox or, of course, this recent one here with Father Goran uh, Jovacic. Uh, we'll have follow-up information there. Any books that we mentioned uh, will be available in the online bookstore as well. So head on over there to Ave Maria Radio. Dot net. That's AveMariaRadio.net. And stay tuned because Catholic Answers Live is uh, picking up the conversation as I go off the air. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow for another edition of this thing we call Cresta in the Afternoon. And I'll see you then. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A Radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.